This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is January 7th, 2021. And whoever had the over on 2021 being crazier than 2020, at least for a first week, please collect your winnings at the ticket window. Um, oh, boy. Yeah. I here at the end. It's not going to go... Not going to go well for the next fourteen days. I hope it goes well after that. I guess is kind of what I'm holding on to. Rebecca, mm-hmm. how are you doing? I'm. I think also in that place. Um, I'm having a lot of. Well, I'd been kind of joking at the end of last year, like you know, I don't think I'm starting 2021 until after the inauguration, and yeah, I right. I think I'm actually going to need that as a now as the feeling of being in a potentially new place. Um, Lots of, uh, I have a lot of feelings about what happened yesterday. I'm sure we all do. Um, None of them germane to our normal topics, I guess. Yeah, none of them germane to a publishing podcast. Um, But, you know, we've recorded since, really since COVID started and then in other ways throughout the Trump administration, we've recorded shows on all kinds of days where all kinds of things have happened in the world. And it just does feel important to acknowledge, like on the day that we are recording this podcast yesterday, white nationalists overtook the Capitol. And that is where we're sitting today, where you're sitting by the time you listen to Mm. this on Monday or Tuesday of next week might be very different. I hope very different in a safer, saner way. Um, But just I think it's good to acknowledge that's the thing that has happened in the world, and that's certainly the thing that we've been thinking about the most. Yeah. Um, We'll get into the rest of the... It's a strange week in a lot of ways, Um, but uh, some stuff that happened at the end of December, um, kind of year-in-review stuff, not a a lot of real new book stuff, um, but uh, we'll get to it in a moment. But first, let's, let's do our first sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Irena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. 
No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. I want to start uh, on somehow even more of a downer note than what we started the podcast on. <laughs> we, we, we lost some authors over December that we didn't get a chance to talk about. Um, for, my, for my, you know, in my personal reading life, um, John Le Carré was one of my, is, was one of my favorite authors. I read a lot of John Le Carré who passed away December 12th at the age of 39. Um, his real name actually, was David John Moore Cornwell, which is about as a British name as, as you can get, um, who wrote under the pen name John Le Carré, whose occupation on Wikipedia is one of the best ones you're going to see, mm. novelist slash intelligence officer, um, <laughs> who, you know, wrote, invented the literary thriller in a, in a lot of ways. Um, Ian Fleming popularized the spy novel but Le Carré really gave it more brains, made it a ethical and moral um, genre as much as an action-filled one, as much of an international and, and plot-filled one. Um, one of the great 20th century fictional creations in, in the figure of George Smiley, a conflicted, dour, noble, flawed apparatchik who also questioned his place in the machine. Um Boy, that sounds relevant for reasons I can't quite uh, mm-hmm. put my finger on. Um, but, you know, the progenitor and exemplar of a something that we kind of take for granted, which is the, the moody international spy thriller and the spy as a thinker as much as, if not more than a shooter, ladies' man, mm-hmm. doer kind of a situation. The, thinking about Smiley as a representation of masculinity versus Bond is, oh, you know, one of the, you know, sometimes you just want to sit and think about that for a while on a, on a, of, a, of a Thursday. <laughs> well, um, man, I hope there's somebody out there who has done a master's thesis on that or is doing it. I bet yeah. we could find that. Smiley, whose signature personal story is that his wife cheats on him. Bond, whose signal one is... I mean, as profligate <laughs> as the sun, James Bond <laughs> shines on everyone. Let's put it that way. Um, sad to see. I mean, he he had a good long run, uh, still writing towards the end. An agent running the fields came out, I think, just last year. His really interesting memoir, The Pigeon Tunnel, came out a couple years before that. Um, his son Nick Harkaway is a um, he, he he leaves descendants, both you know, biological 
and literarily, literally and figuratively, mm-hmm. Nick Harkaway. It's it's this naming stuff is weird because Nick Harkaway's real name I don't even know what it is. Is it Cornwell? Is is Nick Harkaway's I last name Cornwell? Don't know. Yeah. It's it's. I mean, I guess it's not surprising that the the scion of a spy novelist should have a name we don't know what his real <laughs> name actually is. Um, seems seems appropriate. You know, I'm not sure what else to say. If you wanted to get started, a friend of mine texted me about, you know, I've never picked up the La Carre, where should I start? Like a lot of these things, start with the Signal one, which is Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Um, mm-hmm. And then from there, Tinker Taylor. Unfortunately, the rest of the Smiley's trilogy is more racist than you would like to see at large, but even more racist than you would really need to see now. Um, the stuff said in China is pretty tough to take right now. Mm-hmm. Um but Tinker Taylor, Spy Who Came In From The Cold, and then Pigeon Tunnel is where I would go if you're interested in that. Um, yeah, the nightmare. I mean, the other thing, we haven't talked about this. One of the one of the great, adapt- wonderful adaptations of Spy Who Came In From The Cold, a couple of good adaptations of Tinker Taylor, a really good um, miniseries adaptation of The Night Manager, and a really good adaptation of The Constant Gardener. Starring Ray Fiennes, which came out oh, in the, yeah. the the aughts, was really good too. So, um, if and when we ever actually get back to doing um, um, book nerd movie club, maybe Le Carre would be one worth visiting as well. As also want to mention that Barry Lopez, a local author, a Portland author, um, passed away. He won the National Book Award for Arctic Dreams, um, which is a wonderful book that. Michiku Kakutani described as being about the Arctic in the same way that Moby Dick is about whales, meaning not that much, I think. <laughs> um, but it's a travel log, a climate book. It's nonfiction. It's a memoir. Lopez spent a lot of time in the Arctic. I think it's a book you'd really like, Rebecca. Do you know Barry I Lopez was, at all? I know. When you said Barry Lopez, my brain went, I don't know who that is. And then you started mm. describing the book, and I was like, immediately buying this. Yeah. Yeah, Arctic Dreams is is really good and kind of in a sad end to his story. Um, I think he was, I think it was he was fighting pancreatic cancer or something for a long time. I uh, lived in Oregon, but lost his house in the wildfires this summer, oh. including all of his original manuscripts. Oh man! And I saw a quote, and I'll try to find a link for the show notes, but um, basically um, took the wind out of the sails that were already under duress mm. by a long illness. So a sad way to go, um, but I hope people take the chance now um, to rediscover or to discover the work of, of Barry Lo- Lopez. Arctic Dreams, I, I have, I'm sorry to say, is the only book that I've read. I don't know why. Sounds I really wonderful. liked it. I never can't. It's one of those, I think I read it in a time when I wasn't especially good about, oh, I like this book, especially nonfiction, and then seeing mm-hmm. what the other the other books by that author were. Um, yeah, but Arctic Dreams, I'm trying to think when that came out. 86, so it's been a while, but it won the National Book Award. And I hope there's a great audio version because it's, you know, memoir and travel literature. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, the genres I'm just looking at here, nonfiction, travel literature, nature writing. I mean, I think Shinsky (laughs) was the next one. If I don't think there's a, they had a, they had an ISBN tag from that. Um, It does sound right up my alley. Right now it's on sale um, for most digital retailers for a few bucks. Kindle is three bucks, Google Play, $2.99. So go, go buy that. And read it, um, if you would like to do so. So that's Barry Lopez and Jean Le Carré. Fare thee well. Thank you for your your contributions to our our reading lives. Um, let's see. I guess follow up. Um, we're not going to talk too much about this one. Volter had a really mm. 
in-depth piece on American Dirt and, you know, what the hell happened, I think. The the title is really interesting. It's, um, uh, let's see, what's the title here? Uh, Blurbs Blurbs to Death. death, Yes. Uh, A really good piece by Lila Shapiro, um, who you might remember uh, was a guest on Annotated uh, back in the day when we talked about um, uh, the the hacking of Mm -hmm. the New York Times bestseller (laughs) list. Um, I, I don't want to talk about this book. I don't really want to talk about this article because it would just be saying things that Shapiro wrote better than I could. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll put a link in the show notes there. Is there anything you wanted to pull out there uh, from that as being, maybe we need to blurb the blurb to death. Like, <laughs> what, what do we learn from this? Like, why, why should someone read this? You I know, thought it was interesting, but some of it is just to give ourselves context and ungaslight ourselves <laughs> about how crazy it was. Yeah, I think it's really interesting as a document, interesting and important as a document of how this happens and how publishing really works. You know, mm. Shapiro says she talked to, I think, a couple dozen Macmillan employees, all of whom asked to be anonymous because they were afraid of losing their jobs um, for going on the record. And she got a lot of information and a lot of really insightful comments from them that give more complete that that help us create a more complete picture about how a book like this gets made and then how the controversy around it and then the reaction to that controversy all shook out I think the piece that I've been thinking about the most and sitting with that I am the most glad that she hung a lantern on is an element where um so I should say Amy Einhorn, who was the editor, acquiring editor of this book, declined to be interviewed for it. And Janine mm-hmm. Cummins declined to be interviewed for it. So Shapiro only has, for her reference, other places that they're on the record. And she refers to an interview from 2014 where Einhorn says that she doesn't consider an author's identity or biography um, when she's acquiring fiction because that would basically be to do a disservice and it's just about a good story. Now, whether that's what she still thinks in 2021 or what she thought in 2018, 2019, 2020, we don't know because she wouldn't go on the record. Um, But Shapiro asks very pointedly, you know, if the author's identity doesn't matter, why did they make such a big deal of tying Janine Cummins's alleged identity (laughs) and alleged experiences to the marketing of the book. Um, And, you know, we don't need to recount the shady ways that that Mm -hmm. was done. Those are recounted in the piece. But that's a really important question to ask, um, because I I think that's a really essential sort of double standard that happens in these moments of trying to defend. We just wanted to publish a good story. The person's identity, like identity politics shouldn't be part of it. But if you use an element of the author's identity for marketing, you're fundamentally disagreeing with yourself. Um, So I was glad to see that pulled out. Um, And I I certainly hope that we'll see more discussion around this and, you know, obviously more progress on how um, issues like this are treated and a decrease in books like this being published. Yeah. Um, Anyway, we'll put a link in the show notes. Really good piece by Lila Shapiro there. Glad glad to see it. Um, I guess the other, as as long as we're talking about this, is kind Mm -hmm. of a seg into the, the publishing meta story is I don't know what American Dirt would have sold if this conversation actually hurt book sales because the book freaking sold. It continues mm-hmm. to sell. I'm not sure what else to say about that other than it is. So the next time someone worries that you're going to hurt a book by um, pointing out that, you know, what the flaws of it might be, the limitations, the silences and the exclusions, um, 
it's not the case that the book's not going to sell, for better or worse at this point. I don't think we can say that, uh, seeing what um, American Dirt has done. Yeah, I think a publisher's commitment to the marketing campaign and their refusal to really respond to criticisms around the book in a meaningful way resulted in that. Mm -hmm. Um, That once the cat was out of the bag and all of the main marketing had been done and Oprah had already named it, like most people are not paying such close attention to the conversation that they're watching for the Oprah follow-up of, oh, this book was controversial Mm -hmm. um, or for where it was removed from lists. Most readers are just not paying attention to that. And once it makes it onto the bestseller shelf at Barnes & Noble, that's where it's going to be for people to find it or the front page of Amazon where it was for, I think at the half point of the year, it was on the best books of the year so far list. And by the end of the year, it was not appearing there. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, um, speaking of best-selling books of, of 2020, mm-hmm. um, this is a piece in mental floss rounding up the New York times best-selling books of the year. Um, gosh, the hardcover fiction list. I've come around to the, I, I went through a, boy, it's all, when I was young, a younger and, and more foolish man, and not as, I'm not as foolish as I am now, I'm still foolish, mm-hmm. being like, look at all this um, bad book, look at all these bad books. Then I came around to people going to read what they're going to read, there, there's a right time and a right place for a lot of books, blah, 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 you know, don't don't hate on the, the, the Grishams, Baldacci, Connolly, you know, Sparks, Lee Child, that's you know mm-hmm. mass market now i'm all the way back around to look at all these white people oh, and well, yeah. how you know we've talked about this of late as there's been a talk about how publishing has become more diverse more diverse marginalized voices are getting deals and getting book book deals awards are going to more and more people of color um people of different gender identities people from around the world but this is the last citadel of exclusion is the books mm-hmm. that make the big bucks. This is it. Yeah. And it's reminded us to us again. In a lot of ways, it's the hardest to crack, I think. Um, it, it takes more than one editor, one ed yeah. acquirer, one marketer, mm-hmm. a couple of dummies like us on podcasts. It takes the whole... This is this is the thing. This is the, the, the carcass that will be dragged last into the yeah. future. It's the smallest room that's the hardest to get into. That's right. And all the gold is in there. It's the right. vault. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when you think about it, a vault is just a small hard room to get into with gold. <laughs> um, uh, well, some things are staying consistent in 2021. Yeah. And I don't know what to make of this, Where, but hardcover fiction sells more than hardcover nonfiction, but hardcover nonfiction has some people of color on it, and some of them are exceptions that prove the rule, but some of them aren't, I think. Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, Isabel Wilkerson. That's three of the top 10 best-selling hardcover nonfiction books of the year. Now, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama are special, but in its own way, so is John Grisham special among fiction writers. So I'm not sure what to do with that, Rebecca. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I... I was just also really interested in this hardcover nonfiction bestseller list. And I think, you know, any year that Barack Obama puts out a memoir, he's yeah. going to be among the bestsellers. And Michelle, Michelle Obama, too, right? Yeah. Still among the bestsellers from, I think, Becoming came out in 2018. Um, I'm really happy to see cast so high on yeah. the list. You know, a, a big book. Wilkerson is such a wonderful writer and has a beautiful way of narrativizing stories that tell well, that illustrate 
complex and difficult to wrestle with ideas. And they're just ideas that not everybody, they're like, it's not fun. It's not a fun time Mm -hmm. reading an Isabel Wilkerson book and thinking about caste and social hierarchy and race and all of these things. But it's really important. And I'm glad to see that there. You know, Dolly Parton, happy to see that on the list. And it's just such an interesting combination here of like Wilkerson is really the only person on this list of hardcover nonfiction who's not a celebrity. Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, Dolly Parton, Reed Drummond, who is the pioneer woman, Matthew McConaughey, Michael J. Fox, and Alex Trebek. And then, and so you have like a variety of celebrity memoir, a presidential memoir, and then a big book about social issues. Mm. And that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting that the, the, the brand name moves the units, right? I guess. Mm -hmm. Surprised to see, Michael J. Fox on there. I guess McConaughey, you know, he has its own cult following. Trebek passed away, so there's yeah. some interest you there. Know, um, the, anyway. the McConaughey book, I listened to it on audio, and it is... I went in pretty skeptical of, like, this is probably just a gimmicky mar- marketing situation, like Matthew McConaughey is no dummy. It's kind of perfect. Like, <laughs> it's exactly what you want a Matthew McConaughey memoir to be as a mix of like stories about things that would only happen to Matthew McConaughey and like stoner wisdom. Great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can we talk, go back to the quality of the paperback <laughs> or the, the fiction hardcover list from not mm-hmm. my jam. Not, that's not my yeah, unit, yeah. but fine, fine. If we move on to the paperback fiction now, when we get interesting mm-hmm. now we get into, these are people who paperback fiction, they're not buying the new, embossed name at Costco list, they're buying something else. And the queen of that list of paperback fiction, weirdly, because of there is no poetry list, because there's nothing there, is two books by Rupi Kaur, um, mm-hmm. her new book, Homebody, and then Milk and Honey, which is basically an annuity to print money at this point right. for her. Um, that book is going to be a bestseller forever. For forever. Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu, buttressed by you know, a major literary award. Shuggy Bain by Douglas Stewart, also buttressed by a mil- uh, major literary award. Stephen King, there's a Stephen King book, The Institute, which is was not new last year, I don't think. Was it new mm-hmm. last year or the year I don't before? think so. I think it was the year So it before. didn't have a hard-to-cover and a paperback cycle. And then The, the Queen's Gambit by Walter Tevis, you know, the mm-hmm. beneficiary of basically every person I know watching yeah. The Queen's Gambit. Um, <laughs> that good old Netflix bump. Boy, and nothing like it, too. Then She Was Gone, a Lisa Jewell thriller. And then This Tender Land by William Kent Kruger, which is the most mid-list novel here. Like, William Kent Kruger is the big winner of all these lists because who knows who William Kent Kruger is. Right. I really like this book. Disclaimer, they, they they did a spot on the show. But for William Kent Kruger to make this list means that every literary nerd, or, or so many literary nerds read this because this is un- that's an unusual book. There's no adaptation. Yeah. There's no hook to it. It's just a good old-fashioned literary fiction, literary this novel. Is- this is also the list, this paperback fiction list, when we have the numbers attached to it, which they're not attached here because this yeah. is from New York Times New bestsellers. Times. But like when we see the PW version of these numbers, where the gap between the, no- the sales of the number <laughs> yes. one spot and the sales of the number 10 spot are is very astonishing. I think yeah. that my most pleasant surprise here is seeing Charles Yu land so high on the list with Interior Chinatown because like, he did get the bump of a major literary award. But winning the National Book Award is not necessarily a guarantee nope. for a big bump nope. in book sales especially for the kinds of like interesting and weird fiction that charles you writes and i say that lovingly you know um, it's but a it's great just, point yeah 
it's just not the kind of novel that you read and think like, oh, if this just had a little bit better publicity, it would go everywhere. Like he he writes some really unique and different stuff. Um, so I'm happy to see that having worked out for him. And I don't know what kind Shuggy Bane, I think, was just sort of a sleeper on my radar this yeah. year. I don't know the what Brits kind of marketing love that. they then spilled I, over. I would say I didn't know what kind of marketing existed mm-hmm. around it. How much of that is also just the benefit of having been up for a big award. Um, but that's it's an interesting list. And I just will, I think, forever shake my fist at the inclusion of poetry on a fiction list. I mean, really, there should be the Rupi Carr section. Just it's like <laughs> right. all of her books and they all sell better than all the other. Or like the wild combined. card, like the uncategorized yeah, thing that is selling. There everywhere. is miscellaneous. They put that's Atomic true. Habits. We'll get to that in a minute here. Yeah, it's... it's yeah, the paperback nonfiction list. Now, this is a good one. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, we should have started this. If you had to read one of these lists, which do you pick? I mean, I think I've read I would most be torn of between the pa- I think I'd be torn between the paperback fiction and the paperback nonfiction. Because you get a, a, a weirder mm. mix. Um, yeah. I'd get two car novels. I guess I would have novels, more. Novels, novels. <laughs> I'd have more to discover on the paperback fiction list because I have read most of or many of these paperback nonfiction pieces. But like how fantastic Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer is the bestseller in paperback nonfiction. And if you had, you know, asked me a couple of years ago to put bets on would a book that was published like 10 years ago by a Native American woman about the intersection of Native American cultural and religious practices around plants and the natural mm-hmm. world and the intersections of those things with botany and science become a bestseller for years, I would have been very surprised. Um, but I couldn't mm-hmm. be more delighted. You know, like that's a house favorite, but it's just a favorite among readers now. Um, yeah. And about halfway down the list, The Body Keeps the Score um, by Bessel van der Kolk, which is a probably the best known work about long-term physical and emotional effects of trauma and the ways that our bodies and psyches are impacted in a long-term way by trauma. Like that's one that um, our friend Josh Christie at Print Bookstore has said, like, you know, no matter how many copies they order of Braiding Sweetgrass and the body keeps the score, they won't have enough. Um, huh. They're just perpetual bestsellers. It is interesting that, and again, my, my mind... Um forgets about the self-help personal development i want to make myself better reading category and Mm. there's wide diversions in veracity and quality in that but this seems like is that is this do you think this falls into that are those people buying that that would would have read um i don't i'm trying to think of something uh the seven habits of highly effective people 10 years ago well i don't know i think so my exposure to the body keeps the score was through initially the first place I heard people talking about it was in like the yoga and mindfulness world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it probably got initial attention in that kind of space. And then there are like trauma therapists who work with that. And it's been out for a while, like for several years. So my best guess is that now that we're having a much broader cultural conversation about trauma and mm. it is taken as read much more widely that that this is a true thing that trauma 
that we store trauma in our bodies and that like no matter how hard you try to suppress or ignore a traumatic experience it's going to come up and come out in some way like like that that's functionally what this book is getting to yeah um we now have sci- a lot of science around that and it's just more widely accepted it, and i think there's room like the language in the book is a little bit older. Um, there are some discussions around things that come across as gendered. Like I have some friends who read it recently and were pulling out these criticisms. There's room for like an updated edition or for someone yeah. to build on. Five years old and, at this point, which yeah, is short and, and long in this kind yeah, of situation. Yeah, like it could be updated with a new edition or someone else could come out with something that stands on its shoulders and does the next step. But the wide discussions about trauma have just gone in a direction where I think many, many more people are reaching for like, what's the gold standard in that category. And mm. right now it's this book. Yeah. I mean, it is much more of a science book. Cause then I look down to the advice, how to and miscellaneous, that's where you get the atomic habits, where you get the five love languages, yeah. speaking of annuities to print money. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, forgiving what you can't forget, discover how to move on, make peace with painful memories and create a life that's beautiful again. It feels like it's cu- it could be in the same vein, but it is, is way more rigorous than any of that stuff. It's interesting how they break yes. it down, I guess. Yeah, they call this nonfiction like, and this is advice. Yeah, like The Body Keeps to. the Score is a book that your therapist or psychiatrist or physician is going to recommend to you. Mm-hmm. They're not going to recommend the five love languages? They might. You don't think? Yeah. I mean, I some don't know. of them might. Sure. A therapist might, but... Think like a monk, train your mind for peace and purpose every day. And now I'm just in the miscellaneous, right? <laughs> The Atomic Habits, this book sells, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. Um, usually when you see someone says easy and proven, it means they're neither easy nor proven. Uh, <laughs> or they're easy but deeply unproven. D- 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 difficult and suspect ways is how I generally think about this. Um, I'm not sure. You know, there's a, there's a Magnolia book. There's a, com- there's a cookbook. The Dungeons and Dragons cookbook. A shouts oh. to, to that. Um, the Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. The Barnes and Noble pick for the 2019 book of the year, mm-hmm. um, continuing to sell like hotcakes. Though I can't remember the last time I bought a hotcake, so that cliche <laughs> probably needs some updating here. Um, the paperback nonfiction too. I guess we were we were talking about where 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 are some progress being made for including voices that aren't you know just white people. We really start to see it everywhere else besides that. Besides the, the, I don't know, the, yeah, the, the vault, the, the vault mm-hmm. at the top. Any observations from this? Hmm. I'm glad for the diversity of both subject matter and authors in paperback nonfiction. Yeah. I think it's also really reflective of the year that 2020 was, you know, like the warmth of other suns having sort of a surge again in sales, probably both because of cast mm-hmm. coming out and also because of the big conversation about race that we had, especially through the summer. White Fragility is a product of of that same bump. Pete Souza's wonderful book, Shade, A Tale of Two Presidents, like that is reflective of what happened in 2020. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Her memoir, My Own Words, is there. Um, and The Body Keeps the Score. Like It's not accidental that we're talking yeah. a lot more about trauma than we were in 2015. <laughs> I guess related to that, my my other note was was about what's not there. Not a direct Trump book to be seen on this list. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know the advice how to like miscellaneous category. I feel like a lot of these you could just swap out on any given year by Mm -hmm. doing like plug and chug. Exactly what you were saying, like a book about how to an easy way to do a thing that's actually really hard. (laughs) 
an easy way to do really hard things that's actually right, like, hard. Think like a monk, except yeah. not actually, because you're going to give it five minutes a day. That's right. Yeah, the easiest thing to do is to buy a book that's about <laughs> things being easy when they're not. Right. Uh, yeah, I... Over the, tangentially over the holidays, I listened to an interview um, with Dan Harris, who's the author of Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, and was, um, he's a news anchor who famously had a panic attack on air, and this like subsequently led to exploration of meditation. But he has a company and a meditation app called 10% Happier, and the joke there that's actually really true is like, this won't fix your life, but maybe you'll get 10% happier. Mm. And I was like, I just deeply appreciate the honesty of that book title. <laughs> Like, yeah, you won't be a monk. You won't be completely fixed, <laughs> but like maybe 10% better. Maybe 10% better. Yeah. I, I Maybe we should write a book called Barely Better. <laughs> what you can actually, what you can reasonably expect from this book. Barely Better, <laughs> colon. Keep your expectations low from what you're going to get out of this book. I think that'll sell. Incremental changes. Yeah. The five things you probably won't do. <laughs> There it is. <laughs> Page one is like, look at your journal from January 1st of last year. Yeah. Copy these five things. I know, I know, um, colon. Things you already know you should be doing and aren't and probably still won't. Um, <laughs> let's take a sponsor break and come back. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So writ large, outside of the particular title talk, though the Obama book selling enough to, to raise the tide, is that quiet as it's kept, but not quiet as it's kept if you've been listening to this show, is that it was a very good year for books. It, I don't know what to say, Rebecca. It was. It just it was, was a good year for, for, well, for, I guess, for the publishing industry, for book sales. It was a really good year. And when thrown against the relief of the uh, dumpster, the, 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 the tire vomit, I'm trying to think of something worse than a dumpster fire. The, mm. the tire vomit that was 2020, even better, especially if you're comparing it to, say, the movie industry or the event industry, or yeah. restaurants, anything where you think about discretionary income, maybe video games did better, streaming services, and then books. Those are the three. Who would have thought? But I mm -hmm. guess it makes it makes sense, right? I mean, it just makes sense. It does. And even, you know, it's interesting, audiobooks were up over 2019, even though commutes were, you know, decreased or disappeared for many people and it's sort of anecdotally believed that commuting is the time when all the audiobooks get listened to but it does make sense like maybe the puzzle industry had a better 2020 than yeah. anybody else did like everyone was home a lot more and looking for ways to occupy themselves and to spend their time and of hobbies that you can spend money on books are 
relatively inexpensive relative, you know, compared to like video games or um, you can buy you could buy a hardcover for $27 or you could buy a new movie on your on-demand service for about that much and only have two hours of enjoyment. So I, I think there's a lot of stuff there that there was just, there were just more books being read. There were also big things that happened in the culture that people wanted to buy a lot of books around the black lives matter protests after George Floyd was killed and all of the anti-racist reading that happened after that, or at least the purchasing of anti-racist books that happened after that gave rise there to some purchasing and it was just a good year for books and i think the at this point this far into the -hmm. covid pandemic the independent bookstores that have sustained themselves and have figured out how to navigate the territory are doing relatively well also um Mm. and it it seems to me that bookstores and indies at least are a thing that communities have rallied around Mm. i'm so happy to see that as well 8.2% 8.2% increase mm-hmm. in print book sales in 2020 over 2019 is a piece in Publishers Weekly by Jim Milliot. Um, let's see. Everything you would expect. Kids books yeah. up. Um, young adult up. Fiction up. Political book up. Um, number one book of the year, Promised Land. Mm-hmm. Um, number one seller. According to this, and I don't know what it is about the New York Times bestseller list. But where was Crawdads on the New York Times bestseller list? It wasn't there on any of those, was it? Did we just no. skip it? Mm-mm. So we something didn't... in the arbitrage of how... So the New York Times, I believe, for hardback fiction, only includes things that were published in the last year, front list. And since Crawdads is not in paperback, it seems yeah. dumb. God, yeah, because it's Times sold. Why do we even talk about that? <laughs> this makes me mad. We did a whole show about why we should care about... What are we doing here? Are we resolving to never talk about bestseller lists? No, I. But like, let's just do book scan. People buy one point one million copies of Crawdad Singing. It's not why. That's insane. That is insane way of thinking about. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say insane. That is an illogical and misrepresentative way of thinking about what books actually sold. If we're talking about what books sold, let's talk about maybe what books sold. Call me crazy. Call call me illogical. I'm really mad about this. I continue to be mad because I like, like there's something to be said for a way of looking at what was popular outside of raw sales, Mm -hmm. but then masquerading as if it is just raw sales. Like just treat me like an adult and tell me what the scam is to quote uh, Carl Reiner in Ocean's Eleven. I always forget that I shouldn't be paying attention to that as much (laughs) as I can. Because if you leave crawdads off that sold 1.1 million copies of the year, which is makes it one of at least one of the 10 best books of the year across categories has to, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. has to. Anyway, now, now what am I talking about? I don't know what I care about. Maybe this this is the year that we finally pony up for our own book scan subscription. (laughs) I mean, look, it's 2,500 bucks a year. Think of how many copies of Crawdads we could buy with that. <laughs> oh, God. I would pay to not have to encounter Crawdads ever again. Yeah, I'm, we'll, still, we'll, I'm still sad that that was such a bad experience. So bad. We were so, so hopeful, Jeff. We were so hopeful. And I was starting it on my way to vacation because I was reading it at a time that vacations were still a thing. And I remember texting you from the airport like, oh, boy, oh, I'm boy. 50 pages in and this is ungood. Yeah. Uh, really, really <laughs> something to say here. And, I, you know, I don't have it in front of me. Um, maybe I'll try to find it, put it in the show notes later. Overdrive. 
um, did a press release about the growth they've seen there. Not surprisingly, the big winner, I think probably even more than print, was library lending, um, up 33% for digital library lending over 2019. I could have believed more than that, frankly. Um, I think probably only gated by the digital rights man- management on the copies. You couldn't have get for love or money most of the ebooks you wanted in less than a 16 week mm-hmm. waiting window. My 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 children, bless their hearts, were thrilled to find books they wanted to read that had less than 12 week hold periods and waited um, with bated breath for the 14th book in the Whatever Dragon series that Ames is into at this point. I can't remember what it is now. Um, but up all over the board, children's YA genre checkouts were up 79 percent. Um, 289 million ebooks borrowed. 102 library systems around the world. There's a 72% increase achieved more than 1 million digital book checkouts. Um, yeah. You know, anything wild. that anything that you could do from home was a winner mm-hmm. this year. And you can check out books from home. Um, ebook and audiobook holds waitlisted. 187 million up 44%. Um, not surprising. I found my... I don't know if we talked about this... Um, in, our, in, in one of our several different year-end wrap-ups we seem to do every year. <laughs> yeah. My audiobook listening was way down to the point mm. where I paused my Audible subscription. I'm just not listening to audiobooks right now. Just not. Yeah, mine was down. You know, I don't have a commute, and so mostly my audiobook listening is like running to the grocery store or running errands. And for the first mm-hmm. several months of COVID, that was really, really restricted. So it was way, way down then. Um and it's sort of ticked back up. I had more, I think we talked when we were doing our best of the rest show, like I had more podcasts and things that I discovered that I was listening to. It was just harder to find the sustained audiobook time yeah. for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the most popular ebooks borrowed in 2020, number Ooh, one, a little book you may have heard of about crustaceans in, in choir. Um <laughs> uh, Becoming Educated by Tara Westover, Little Fires Everywhere and The Giver of Stars by Jojo Moyes. Rebecca Shinsky, why does this not line up with the best-selling paperback fiction of the year? Why? What? Why? Well, why doesn't it? I don't know. That's not what I. That's not what I wanted. <laughs> that doesn't help well, me. I help may, me. Help well, me. I think that there are differences in. Oh, great! Oh, there are differences. Thanks. In, okay. In, great. Good. There are differences. That's sorry, the, my full now, answer now. You fault. don't get the rest. We're done okay. here. Because <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't have a good know, answer you know, the, either. To jump back very briefly to the American Dirt piece, oh, there yeah. was a note, but there just was a note in there, like a one line. The publishing industry doesn't collect demographic data about its readers. Mm. And I was like, well, that's an important one sentence. And it is. That's the kind of stuff that means we can't answer these questions. Like, what are the meaningful differences in interest and genre preferences between people who read like paperbacks or audiobooks or people who will buy a paperback or wait for an ebook from their library? Like, Mm -hmm. presumably these differences exist. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, that's fair. What we don't know is an answer to what the difference could be. Demographic, socioeconomic statistics. The right. principal and difference in an ebook yeah. that you lend versus buy is that you right. money changes hand. And the so and there may be 
other, you know, confounding factors, right, that are just things that are that happen to be different about those people, but that don't necessarily make the decision. It's just that the mm-hmm. groups are different in, in whatever ways those are. But like it, I mean, this is one of my don't get me started kinds of things about publishing, like it will drive me bananas forever that or or until someone finally collects data that we don't know the answers to these kinds of things that there's so much of publishing runs on anecdata and like cultural lore about mm-hmm. what sells and what doesn't sell and like there was a year where all the book covers were yellow cuz someone was like yellow makes people want to do things you like <laughs> that was okay. probably in the five colors to make you marginally happier in uh, 2014 <laughs> yeah. or the year where all the book titles had girl in them you yeah. know like or all the ones that were like floral wallpaper right with, there are these with big logos on them there are these weird trends and then there's all this sort of cultural lore and just things that people believe about what will sell and what readers do and don't do and in the absence of data that's all you get is stories people make up about things yeah. to connect two dots because that's how our brains are made mm-hmm. it's, it makes me very unhappy <laughs> and i'm guessing that a promised land I mean, I think you're probably also seeing some lag, too, where the hold list for A Promised Land when Mm -hmm. it comes out in November is such that it can't compete with things that have been available to check out for the whole year, right? Whereas in sales, it can get a big spike. Right. And there are probably people making that decision of, I don't want to wait seven years to be up on the hold list of A Promised Land, so I'm going to buy that where I would normally not. Mm -hmm. There's, I think, the question of what are you willing to wait for? is yeah. a big factor. And I, I don't know, I feel like there's a circuitous logic to the, well, if Little Fire's everywhere and Educate have been out for a while, maybe the holds line isn't as long. But then if everyone's checking yeah. it out, wouldn't it make the holds line? I don't know. I, I'm, well, I'm lost there. I've, I've emceed yeah. effort myself. There's also the complication there of, you know, another thing that we hear in the industry is that people who use the library typically don't use the library exclusively you know that like library Mm -hmm. use is seen as supporting book sales in some way and that most readers like you know we talk about most readers buy from multiple places most readers you know most people who use the library also buy books sometimes whether this is true who knows but like Mm -hmm. if you're making if you're doing the calculus of what am i checking out from the library and what am i spending book dollars on the thing that's going to have a really really long hold time and is very appealing like the obama memoir you're probably going to get your dollars too so i would guess now that I'm making up narratives, the, 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 why well, not? Look what you've, Everybody look what else you've turned it? me into. Yeah. Um, that the library list is maybe in some ways reflective of the titles that people are interested in, but that lacks some of the urgency. You put on hold. You put educated on hold, and whenever it comes in, you're going to read it. Yeah. Whereas if you you have you know the top of your TBR pyramid is more urgent, that's where you throw down the cash to, right. to jump the line. Um, we don't get an audiobook section ever, anywhere, really. I don't think BookScan breaks down audiobooks Mm-mm. in any particular way. Um, it does on a weekly basis, but I didn't see anything in their year-end. New York Times doesn't do it at all, as far as I can tell. Um, so this is this is probably the most interesting representative list of what people put in their ears for book related for books this year okay. um, from Overdrive. Number one is this some book about a wizard boy. I don't know. I don't think about it. <laughs> Um, the second one is Becoming, third, Crawdads, mm. four, Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell, and five, okay. Educated by Westover. So three of those overlap with the most popular ebooks of the year. The two that don't, 
I think are worth saying something about. The the one about the weird kid with the scar um, is wonderfully narrated by Jim Dale. Like, it's mm-hmm. an audio experience, so I can see why that would jump the line. And then Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell, he and they who made that book over at Pushkin and, and Little Brown thought of that as an audio-first experience. Like, they, yeah. the interviews there are, all, are are largely with the actual people so that you're hearing their quotes directly from them, not narrated by something else. So I can that make, this list makes sense to me. You get three of the top yep. of all, and then two that people really want to do on audio. Well, you know, it makes a list that makes sense, Rebecca. Yeah, how about that? I know, and Gladwell nonfiction is... Yeah exceptionally it an annuity it's, yeah it's exceptionally audiobooky because a chapter is basically a short podcast yes that's right yeah and maybe literally in gladwell's case because he does revisionist right. i mean yeah. i mean he thinks about them in and very similar terms it's just very sticky um i think you know lots of podcast listeners jumping on the malcolm gladwell ship or vice versa um, yeah but yeah that's those are important distinctions uh, yes for yay finally a list that makes sense <laughs> uh let's do our last sponsor break and then a couple of um Go read and think about things when we come back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. This is one that happened, and again, I don't want to spoil this. Save this, save this for a cup of coffee on a Sunday morning. Um, when you, when you need to really raise your eyebrows, yeah, because um, this piece is by Elizabeth A. Harris and Nicole Perlroth. I believe I'm saying that correctly mm-hmm. in the New York Times, and this is a story about someone. I mean, I don't think they use the word, but it sounds like someone was catfishing authors into sending them their unpublished manuscripts of forthcoming books, including people like you may have heard of, like, oh, I don't know, Margaret Atwood, Mm -hmm. maybe celebrities like Ethan Hawke. And what happened, why it's happening, how they did it, I need this to be a true crime Netflix. I need this. I need this to be something. I mean, this was great. I'm glad it exists. But let's let's uh, let's dramatize this. I think that when there's more answers, if there ever are, like as this investigation goes further, it will lend to a very satisfying show like that. I hope that somebody is thinking about that because it is very head scratchy at this point. Like, I also don't want to spoil it, but they're like. No, like none of these manuscripts that have been sent by authors to someone that they thought was their editor but wasn't have surfaced anywhere. So like the the why of this remains a really big question yeah. mark. And it's it, it spans continents, so it's not just like someone who's familiar with U.S. publishing or maybe it's a group of people. But like, why are they doing this? And some of them are giant authors like Margaret Atwood, but not all of them are. 
Mm-hmm. So like the what is the intended outcome here is just a huge question and I I don't even know how to begin to guess. It's very strange. Like in, you'd have to have a lot of inside information about multiple publishing houses and the connections between authors and editors and who is working with whom to be able to pull this off. And it's like, why would you spend time and effort coordinating something like that or being one person who somehow magically can do all of it? I, I, I don't know. It rang like I had so much dopamine when I was reading it because my brain was just like, what, but why? Yeah. The the essential question, I think you're kind of circling around, what is the value of this and how are they going to exploit this? Is it some fan that just wants to read stuff early? That doesn't, I mean, I guess is it, it's possible. It's plausible. Is it probable? I don't know. Are they going to pirate them somehow? Right, like I it, don't know. And though it, they don't appear to have been pirated or released. And I had the thought, I'm sure everybody who was looking at this did, like, oh, it could be like a disgruntled publishing person who wants to like stick it to these authors because some of the authors are saying you know, that they feel violated by having right. sent their unfinished, unpublished manuscripts that aren't ready for public consumption to someone who might do who knows what with them like is this just sort of emotional terrorism yeah um, who is the person like, that both kylie reed and ethan hawk pissed off about i mean like, right, what a weird right, Venn diagram like, that would yeah, be. yeah it's very strange um right. i hope that we get the answer to it or some answers or just progress i'm not like this can't be the only story that no we hear about no <laughs> I, I can't believe it i hope I, i'm sure that harrison because this 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 story made the rounds um yeah. like it broke out of the bookish internet um but this is a story. This is this is one of the first cars in this train. Get on this train because there's mm-hmm. a caboose coming. Uh, show title uh, <laughs> that is worth getting into. I feel very sorry for the authors yeah, that this happened awful. to. I don't. I don't want to sound like I'm gleefully consuming this because I'm not. I am compelled, but I'm not happy that this is happening to anybody. Yeah, I mean it's um, a it's a violation. Yeah. yeah. The then... last the last piece we have was sent to us by a. A reader and then um, a coworker as well, and I think it wor- is worth talking about a, mm-hmm. in s- at least a little bit. We're not going to spend too much time on it, except to point people at it and maybe give a little context for our own thinking. Um, this is a piece in Eater by uh, Hannah Selinger, um, who wrote about her own experience working for David Chang and her own feelings and reaction to Chang's memoir, um, and then. You know, as was presented to us both by our coworker and uh, listener, I don't have the name in front of you, but thank mm-hmm. you for sending to us. Wasn't like you guys should bag on Chang or do you feel bad? It was just I want to make sure you see this. I'm glad we did because yeah. it's important to it's important to have these. Ex- there's I don't think it's a counter narrative. She doesn't seem to be refuting mm-hmm. anything that Chang says, except maybe to say, maybe stronger than maybe, maybe be careful about the kudos for Eda Peach because the truth is the things he said he did were very bad and he did more of them that, you know, weren't cataloged there. Um, and then how do we feel about that? Cause both you and I, I'll speak for you for the moment and then you could tell me how, how wrong or whether context to give is we really enjoyed the book and insofar as that word is sufficient, like we got a lot out of it. We found it interesting and nourishing and provocative and, um, a good read. We're glad to have read it. We learned a lot. Um, I think in our discussion of Eda Peach, I don't know, I can't remember exactly the tenor we left it on in terms of our level of forgiveness of Chang, for lack of a better term. And I think we had a conversation between the two of us offline yesterday about it saying, don't get us, I do not want to work for David Chang. 
No. Ever. Not even this version of David Chang. He did things that he should not have done. And I hope if there were grievances, they were filed. And if people had cause to bring action, which maybe mm-hmm. they did, I hope they did. I also am glad that Edith Peach exists. That's kind of the tension I'm living with. Um, we said in our conversation yesterday that I'm glad both Hannah Ellinger and David Peach are telling their stories. I think this moves the football of goodness uh, down the field a little bit, that the book exists, that Chang wrote it as he did, and that people are also writing about what is and isn't there. Rebecca, how close yeah. am I to what our, our discussions that we've had so oh, far? Oh, you know, that nails it. You know, we talked for a good long time about this yeah. yesterday, and that's where I have landed as well. I think that Eda Peach and the reckoning that Chang does with his own behavior and the harm that he's aware that he has caused is the kind of public admission and reflection that we want from people who cause this kind of harm and do this kind of thing. Um, I think it matters that a public figure who causes harm does some of their reckoning in public. And I'm very glad to see David Chang have done it. I think I assumed in reading the book that it was not a comprehensive catalog of all the things that he had done. He paints a pretty astonishing picture of his behavior. And you can assume it's relatively widespread. He talks about having lots of tantrums and uh, threatening people and getting in their faces and maybe even being physical. And I was really glad also to see Eater publish this. I think this is the whole direction that we want the cultural conversations about these kinds of behaviors that do cause harm to go in where a person who is genuinely sorry for what they've done can make a public apology and can reckon with some things. Um, and the people that they've harmed also get space to tell their story. Um, and Hannah Selinger's piece here ends in a really interesting place where she says, you know, I don't even know I'm mm-hmm. paraphrasing. Like, I don't even know what I want from David Chang. I don't think I want him to be canceled. I think I just want everyone to know that his version of the story isn't the whole story and isn't the only version of the story. And I think that's really important. Like maybe there are 25 more of these to be published by 25 other people who worked with David Chang. Maybe there are 200 of them. I don't know. Um, That needs to be in the water and it needs to be okay for these voices to take up space, the voices of people who were harmed. And then for a public figure like David Chang to be able to do Like, if you want to do your reckoning in public and you want to show that this can happen and you can examine yourself and apologize and try to move forward, like, that, we need examples of that. Um, And we need examples of it where it's not just a, in a situation like this, I think, where it's not a knee jerk, like, well, now you're over and no one will ever talk to you Mm -hmm. again and you can't get a book deal and we won't address it. Like, this is an important example that he's setting. It's an incomplete one. Um, I think he's still a work in progress and he would agree with that. Um, If there were a follow-up memoir that, you know, covers five more years of his personal work, um, hopefully it would include more of this and more progress. Um, And I hope it's not the last that we hear from David Chang about it. I'm very glad I read the book. Um, yeah. I, I think like realis- realistically, there are decades and generations worth of chefs who owe the public mm. and their former employees this kind of acknowledgement and apology. And then thousands of people who have worked under them who have these kinds of stories to tell. Um, and this more robust version of not just getting the famous person's version of it, but getting 
the version of the person who was harmed getting their story. That really is important. And I'm glad that Eater did it. Um, I hope that they will publish more of them if there are more former employees who want to tell their stories or employees of other chefs. And I completely agree that if there are legally actionable things that were done, I hope that those actions were pursued, um, that you do deserve restitution and repair. Um, but I think that as we were talking about yesterday privately, that the like very difficult truth about being on the receiving end of a harm like this is that there's nothing the other person can do that makes you whole. Mm -hmm. And being able to tell the story and have it received and believed as true is, is a thing that can help a person move towards wholeness. And I'm glad to see Hannah Selinger set that example here also. It's a very good read. I don't want to dismiss it as just a, um, I don't know, a critique. It's more than that. It's a reckoning mm -hmm. in its own way. And I think there's an ambiguity at the end that about Chang's ambiguity at the end mm -hmm. of Eat a Peach that I think mirrors some of the ambiguity of this piece. Like, what is yeah. the truth and reconciliation look like? I'll just read one sentence from the penultimate paragraph. Um, For all that Dave has edited in, in and out of his narrative, what can, he cannot change the trauma he left in his wake. The one thing he can offer up that is commensurate with the scope and scale of the grief he has caused is the space he occupies in restaurants and culture. Mm. He conceded to someone who will use it to change this toxic industry that has broken so many of us. I think that encapsulates a lot of what people want to happen in situations like this. Like you have this chair and you've befouled it, right? Mm -hmm. So give it to someone else. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. Chang can't take Chang and give it to someone else and they get Changness. It does, right? I mean, he can't, right. he can't do it because it doesn't... It's not like an endowed chair at a, at a university. If he said, you know what, I'm going to go into the woods um, and collect walnuts or whatever and, and recede from public life, the chair is gone. Now, maybe that makes room for someone to, to bring up their own chair or something else, but like that direct substitution doesn't really work. Um, now, that doesn't mean he can't cultivate or make space for or whatever, but I think it's interesting to see that kind of what she wants him to be is gone. And is that reasonable? I don't know. Is it practical? I don't think so. But that kind of where the rubber meets the road of how to think about things like this is the right tenor of complexity mm -hmm. to wrestle with because it ain't easy to figure out. Right. And, and Selinger recognizes this is not easy. And she ends it on sort of an elegaic ontological shruggy emoji of, I don't, you know, he, it doesn't sound like he knows. And this, this request, this desire is sort of equally vague, I would say, um, in its own way. And and understandably and maybe incontrovertibly or uh, unreparably so. Mm -hmm. And I think all of this is part of the truth. I think that's yeah. the other thing is like, these are all true things. There might be some things that Hannah want, or Selinger wanted included more or differently, but she's also not saying things weren't true, which I think right. is important, mm -hmm. um, at least as she can tell. And I haven't it's, seen other critiques that's like he's lying. Well, then if we're speaking the truth, then what? If the truth right. is hard, then what? I don't know. Yeah. I think it's messy. If, like it feels messy because it is messy. It feels messy because it is messy. And no part of dealing with any of this is something that's going to feel good. Mm -hmm. Like the best you can hope for, I think, is feeling that you have done the right thing, feeling that you've said something that needed to be said out loud. If you're the person who has caused the harm, feeling that you are making restitution for that in whatever way you can and whatever is owed to 
the person that you've harmed or the people that you've harmed. And like the thing that we all want, and I think the thing that drives the more extreme conversations around these topics is the desire to find something that feels good. <laughs> and mm -hmm. there, there's just not an answer to that. And I really appreciated how Selinger sits with that here. Like, it doesn't feel good to me that this book is out there. It doesn't feel good to me that the story is incomplete. But no, I think she's kind of circling around that. Like yeah. nothing, uh, nothing around it is ever going to feel good to her because of the way that David Chang treated her. And I think mm -hmm. that's true and 100% reasonable. Yeah. And there's kind of nowhere else to go from no. there. And I think it's also reasonable if someone says, you know what, I don't want to read Eat a Peach. I don't want to well, listen totally. to you guys talk about it. I think totally. I could definitely understand that. Mm -hmm. um, I think I have my days where I would be on that side too. I think ultimately... I find myself saying, I want to I want to hear the truth and I want to give space for people to tell the truth and then figure it out. Um, to use Nassim Taleb's argument, which I think is important here, is like, how much skin do you have in the game to judge, right? Mm -hmm. Whether or not Chang does anything else or not doesn't affect me. And so I don't, I, the stakes for me are much lower. So my judgment should be a lot lower in a lot of different ways, I mm -hmm. think. Um, and people like Selinger and people in his orbit, people in the restaurant and food industry, they're a lot closer um, to it, we'll say. Um, but I think Eat a Peach and this kind of, and, and Selinger's piece next to it, alongside of it, ahead of it, around it, mm -hmm. and other kinds of stories, that cluster of story altogether is good to exist. Yeah, I, I right, wish the things right. that there, that, that, that generated them didn't exist. But if those things do happen, we want the, the narrative cloud around mm -hmm. it, the narrative yeah, solar system to exist. Yeah, fundamentally, um, like at the heart of it, I think we're in a better place because eat a peach is in the world and this piece by hannah selinger is in the world than yes, we were before right. either of these stories were told and mm -hmm. and you don't have to agree as you were saying you don't have to buy david chang's book and reward him financially for telling his side of the story everybody makes their own choices about those things but i think the existence of these kinds of stories and more of them is the world i want to live in yeah, I think it is true, and it's something we're thinking about, that the person who writes the book and gets the check and has the name recognition, who has sort of the first mover advantage, like this is what they tell you in public relations, right? If you've got a scandal, get out in front of it, right? Like be mm -hmm. the first mover. I think those sorts of power dynamics, even among, even as we say, I want the story, I want the truth, I want the memoir, I want the whatever, is to remember that that doesn't happen in a vacuum where everyone's treated equally. I think that's another important thing mm -hmm. to say about this is like, there's more scrutiny should be placed on the person with the most power here. So I think we should have more scrutiny on Chang. Um, but that doesn't mean for me, at least to, you know, push, push the stories to the side. That's, right. that's where I am today. You know, and I think two years ago, we might've felt differently with Rebecca about eat a peach. Do you think that way too? When we were mm -hmm. really in the heart of me too, I've been wondering about this. Would we have been ready to have, I don't know. Because well, it's not a Me Too know, story, I guess. Right. It's, it's that's, not. That's, it's not. I think that's where I am. And we haven't yeah. had a Me Too version of this. You know, like, You're I'm... Right. We haven't, have we? It's, so it's the, this is like the closest we've gotten to... Yeah. It's, this is Me Too for like restaurant jerks. I mean, and yeah. more than that, right? Which like, is, this a, is it's, a, it's this own is. toxic culture. That's you know, right. like rest, the restaurant industry has had its own toxic culture for... I don't centuries, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, and there are lots more of these stories that need to be told. But like... Yeah, there's not a we haven't had an equivalent from a person, say, like in Hollywood, write a memoir 
honestly grappling with the sexual assaults that they committed or the sexual harassment or the tenor of the office that they created, you know? Um, And yeah, I don't know where I am on readiness to read a book. I can't imagine. Even just saying it that way, I don't feel ready for that. I don't feel ready for the, 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 the eat a peach for whatever that is. Uh, I'm not ready for that. It's too, too much for me. I don't think we're far enough out of that moment having happened for a person to have done enough meaningful work to be able to talk about it. You know, like Chang's been in therapy for decades um, and working on the stuff around the way that he manages his businesses and treats his employees for many, many years. And mm-hmm. I think it's too fresh. The Me Too stuff is too fresh. And um, there are people whose wrongs in that way are decades old, but I just don't think there's a public figure who has committed those kinds of crimes and misdeeds and had enough time to reckon with them in a way that could be reflected on from a distance. Like there's, I can't remember who says it, but I've heard often the, the saying that like when you're writing memoir, you should write from the healed places, not the Mm. open wounds. And I just don't think the wounds are, nobody's wounds are healed enough to um, have to tell that kind of story. Maybe in five or 10 years, um, it would really take a lot of guts and man, you'd have to be ready for victims to come out and tell their side of the story. Yeah. And you and I've talked about this in various conversations, both on the podcast and off. I mean, one thing we're wrestling with too is what is within and without the veil of the forgivable. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, everyone knows what I mean by that at this point. Um, so anyway, highly recommend the piece that Challenger wrote. Um, I think she makes a point about releasing Momofuku employees from NDAs. If we're actually going to mm-hmm. have a conversation, I think that's that's yep. an arrow that strikes very close to a target uh, from my from my way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I know yeah, those things are it's easy concrete. it's easier said than done, but it can be done. Um, and maybe if it's not complete release, then thinking closely about future NDA policies and why you know what's what's engendered them um, is worth saying. But that's another way of saying. Not all the voices are equally free to tell their stories. And Chang is probably also um, um, bound by NDAs, not to even if he wanted to say, I'm sorry about X thing. NDAs work both ways most of the time. So that's another piece here. There's a shadow narrative. Um, not even shadow. It's in, it's in a vault, right? It's, it's being yeah. locked in a vault for reasons that may or may not benefit one or more parties there. Okay. Well, we started out depressed and it got worse. <laughs> oh, uh, for some reason, that seems right. That seems right. Well, we're officially on a countdown here, um, and uh, I hope we I hope we can get through it with most of whatever we care about intact. Rebecca, happy New Year! Yo, man, just stay safe, folks. Stay steady. We're gonna get through it. Um, one point of order: bookriot.com/slash/listen for show notes. You can email us podcast at bookriot.com. I'd be very curious to hear about um, your audiobook listening habits. Um, I'd also be very curious to hear about if you saw the same thing that I did in my digital lending experience where ebooks seemed much easier to get than audiobooks. I don't know if it's the particular books I was looking at, but there's something going, I feel like there's something going on with rights and inventory and whatever they've got on the digital shelves that made ebooks much easier to get than the equivalent audiobook for the same title. And if that's an experience you've had, please confirm 
my frustration <laughs> at podcast at bookriot.com. Rebecca, we'll talk to you next time. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.